Good morning. I'm not normally one for musicals, but I make an exception for Les Miserables, or as we call it in Liverpool, Les Miserables. It's a brilliant musical. It's the story of Jean Valjean uh, in early 19th century France. At the start of the, of the story, he's imprisoned for having stolen a loaf of bread to feed his starving sister. But the musical tells the story of his release from prison and his attempt to try and build a new life for himself. There's an amazing scene near the start uh, where after having just been released from prison, Jean Valjean is finding it hard to start his new life. He's been turned away from everywhere he tries to seek shelter. He's penniless and everyone's saying no to him because he's got this piece of yellow paper which basically tells him that he's an ex-convict. No one wants anything to do with him. Until asleep in the doorway of a church, he's taken in by the Bishop of Digne. We're going to show a little clip now which just shows the next thing that happens in the story. Hey! Come and suffer, you are weary. And the night is cold out here. Though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. There is wine here to revive you. There is bread to make you strong. There's a bed to rest till morning, rest from pain and rest from wrong. Bless the food we eat today, bless our dear sister and our honored guest. We have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. Get the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. Seeing this some higher plan, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man. I don't know about you, but I just find that clip so beautiful. You see, when Jean Valjean is brought back to the bishop, he's 
everyone knows he's guilty. He's been caught red-handed. He's got a history of crime. He's been a prisoner for 19 years, and now he's done it again. He's stolen all his silverware. He's banged to rights, and there's only one place he's going. He's going to go back to jail, and probably for the rest of his life. But instead of prison, Jean Valjean receives something quite shocking. He receives freedom and two extra candlesticks that he hadn't bargained for. You know, the bishop could have justifiably ended Jean Valjean's freedom right there, but instead he showed them kindness. He covers for Jean Valjean and he insists that he's set free. It's an amazing, amazing story and a moment in the, in the musical. And it actually has some similarities with the story we're going to look at today. We've been looking at a series of encounters with Jesus, stories of real life people who met the real life Jesus 2000 years ago. And it's, it's a really incredible story we're looking at today. If you've got your Bible with you, turn with me uh, to the story in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, and it's verses 1 to 11. It says this. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to st- the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without the sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stopped, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who'd heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there still. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now when you turn to that story, you might have noticed something slightly odd. In most Bibles, the story is written in italics or brackets, um, because the reason being that the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John didn't actually include this story. It seems that it was added at a slightly later date. And as such, some people have cast doubt onto how valid it is, but personally, I'm convinced that this passage belongs in Scripture. It's worthy of its inclusion. It's absolutely theologically in line with all of the teaching and the other stories that we know about Jesus. And there are other versions of other manuscripts of other Gospels which also include this story. It's probably part of the oral tradition that was around about Jesus, of the stories that everyone knew about him. And it was just inserted later than the others into the text. I believe it's worthwhile. It's very much worthy of our study this morning. It is an amazing encounter. The context is so interesting. We've got this woman being brought to Jesus who is essentially guilty. She's on trial and everyone knows that she has been caught red-handed in the act of sin, of adultery. Just like Jean Valjean in that Les Miserables scene, she's banged to right. She hasn't got a leg to stand on. And she's brought before Jesus like Jean Valjean is brought before the bishop. And she, he, she's expecting the punishment that befits the crime. But again, just like Jean Valjean, she goes on to receive unexpected freedom. But actually, as we understand this scene a little bit more, we discover there's two people on trial in this scene. 
The scene happens in the daytime. This woman was almost certainly caught in the act of adultery at nighttime, as you'd expect. And yet she's been somehow, for some reason, kept overnight and only now brought into the daylight and brought before Jesus for his decision. Actually, this woman is being used as a pawn in a religious political game by the chief priests and the elders. They, they bring her to Jesus because they want to put Jesus on trial. He's this new captivating teacher and miracle worker. He's unpopular with the Jewish elite because he threatens their status quo. And this woman is being used to catch him out. They present him to, her to him as a catch-22. They say to this, they ask him this question, look, by the law of Moses, this woman should be stoned. So what do you think we're going to do with her? What do you think should happen? There doesn't seem to be a right answer to this because as a Jew, Jesus should want the law of Moses to be upheld. He should want the woman to be punished in line with what the law of Moses says. In our Bibles, you'll find that in Leviticus 20, the, the, the rule that people caught in adultery should be stoned to death. If he doesn't condemn her to death, then he'll be declared as a false teacher who doesn't support Mosaic law. He'll be told that he's contradicting the law of Moses. But whilst the Jews wanted to live under Mosaic law, they were also living in the Roman Empire. And the rules of the empire at the time were that religious groups were not permitted to execute people on religious grounds. Only the state, only the Roman Empire could choose to execute someone. So if Jesus was to say, yes, this woman should be executed, then the Jews would have grounds to report him to the Romans for breaking their laws. And in doing so, he contradicted his own teaching because elsewhere in scripture, we see him say, actually, you should submit to the authority that you're under, even if that's the Roman authority. You know, he, he says, you know, pay the taxes to Caesar. His name, his, his image is on the coin. The coin goes to him. You, you, you obey the law you're under. So it's a catch-22. If he, if he obeys the Jewish law, he's going to be in trouble with the Romans. If he obeys the Roman law, then the Jews are going to say, you're not a proper Jew. Jesus sees through this trap. He carefully and emphatically turns the situation on its head. Instead of focusing on the sin of the woman caught in adultery, he holds up a mirror to the chief priests and the elders and he tells them, look, if any of you is without sin, then by all means, throw the first stone. And he knows that there's not one of them who can do that. It's the perfect response. It, it neatly escapes the trap set, set for him, but it also forces the elders and the priests and anyone here in the story to examine themselves and to actually bust some pretty amazing myths for us today. I actually see Jesus as a bit of a myth buster in this story. There's three myths I think he busts in, in this story. The first one is this. Myth number one is that the role of religion is just to point out how sinful people are. Actually, it's quite a worldly thing, you know, to be obsessed with publicly shaming people. Social media today thrives on it. It's just a wash with stories and videos where people go viral because of their worst moment. You know, someone has a meltdown on a train and shouts at people. Someone uh, is mean to someone in a park. All of a sudden, they're splashed all over social media as, a, as an awful person. Now, often they have done something wrong. Often they've done something which is worthy of criticism, but they're suddenly thrust into the limelight for the whole world to pour over and to denounce them as such an awful person. We seem to love it. There's something ugly, I think, and damaging about the joy and the vigor with which people expose and share these moments of, of poor behavior. 
But sadly, as Christians, I think we're far from rising above this sort of behaviour. Often, us as Christians can be the ones to start it. There's a survey in America recently in which 90% of people aged 16 to 29 stated that they believed Christians were judgmental. That the primary characteristic they thought of when they looked at Christians was that these are judgmental people. These are people who like to stand up and point to people and say, you're wrong. For me, there's something not right there. Like, as Christians, yes, we need to be able to talk about sin. We need to be able to talk about God's standards. We need to be able to say what we believe is biblically right and wrong. But when we obsess about pointing out the sins of other people more than we preach the good news of the gospel, I think it's really damaging. Taking a Bible-based moral position itself is not the issue, but the way we approach it really matters. Ravi Zacharias, who sadly passed away earlier this year, on his website said this, we've, as Christians, we've been so loud and strident on some issues that many people think that all we're about is abortion and homosexuality. They're two of the issues that Christians have become famous for just for just giving their thoughts on. Too many people know what Christianity is against, but not what it's for. We need to be careful not to put the moral cart before the gospel horse. I think that's such a helpful statement. And this can even be a problem within the church. It's not just about Christians looking at the world and saying, you're doing this wrong. Actually, within the church, we see it. Not only are many Christians good at showing the world where it's wrong, but we, we seem to love judging and criticising other Christians' theology and practice. There are whole blogs and podcasts and websites which just seem to specialise in saying, this person's a false teacher, that person's teaching it incorrectly, that person's got it wrong, don't listen to that person, don't read that person's books. Well, you know, again, there's a place for that, there's a place for calling out incorrect theology, but when we become so obsessed with just flagging up other people's faults, I think we've missed the point somewhere. I think Jesus busts the myth here that the judgment of others is the key part of our faith. The elders and priests are so desperate to show this woman up as a sinful failure and so keen to show Jesus up as a sinful false teacher that they, they concoct the situation. They, they, they try and make the situation go viral. They do it in the light of the day. They do it in the temple courts. They shame this woman. This woman who was caught at night, they bring her into the light of day and try and make a scene to trap Jesus and to shame her and him for the price of one. But Jesus carefully and cleverly responds, as I say, by holding up the mirror, by saying, look guys, we really need to recognise our own sinfulness and shame. We need to acknowledge and understand our own flaws and mistakes rather than trying to point out other people's. It chimes perfectly, as I said, you know, this, this piece of scripture isn't necessarily found in the earliest manuscripts, but it, it chimes with everything else Jesus says. If you look at Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5, it's the perfect example. It's that famous point where he talks about being careful to not, not spend so much time trying to pick the speck out of someone else's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. He says, you know, judge not others, lest you be judged yourself. We need to be so careful to, to work out what's going on in our lives before we look at what's going on in other people's lives. When Christians are viewed as judgmental, that means our message of hope and salvation has been obscured. We have to, our message needs to be, look, we're all wretched sinners, but we have a God who can save us, not you're awful, you should be ashamed of yourself. That's the first myth that this, this passage busts. The second myth this passage busts is this, 
that we must oppose sexual sin above all other sins. Now look, sexual sin is serious. In the Bible, in in various forms, sexual sin is talked about at great length in Scripture. Paul says in his writing, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Look, sexual sin is a huge consequence. It offends God, but it also defiles our own body. It's a big deal. Don't hear me wrong here. We need to be tough on sexual sin. We need to stand against it because it causes so many huge problems in society, social and relational problems in the world. So much of it stems from sexual immorality. But we mustn't narrow our focus so much on sexual sin that we develop blind spots to the other sins going on in our lives. This woman is guilty of adultery. She's caught red-handed and that is a sin which is very, very serious. We know that God views marriage with great importance. It's the adultery is the breaking of a solemn covenant vow. But the way this woman is paraded through the streets and brought to Jesus for harsh judgment and publicly shamed and viewed as worthless and deserving of death, that should concern us, I think. It clearly concerns Jesus because instead of agreeing with this witch hunt, he chooses to defuse the situation and say, look, if, if any of you guys are free of sin, then by all means stone this woman. Jesus, don't get me wrong, takes a high view of sexual sin. Elsewhere, when he's talking about adultery, he upgrades the stakes. He says, look, adultery isn't just committed with the body. If you so much look, so much as look at another person, you commit adultery with your eyes and your mind, not just with your, with your body, not just with your flesh. Sexual sin is serious. It should bother us. But we must also guard against the type of sin that actually these elders and chief priests are displaying in this passage. Self-righteousness. The sin of thinking, do you know what? I am more perfect and holy than you. My life is better than yours. I'm more good, more righteous, more holy than this other person. They're down there and I'm up here. Therefore, God will think more highly of me. That is a sin of such importance that Jesus has to call it out even more than he does the sexual sin of this lady. Now, it's likely that none of the elders and chief priests on this scene were guilty of adultery in the way this woman was. And yet Jesus turns the mirror on them and he highlights the prideful self-righteousness in their lives, which needs dealing with just as much as the adultery in hers. There's a danger when we elevate one type of sin as more serious and offensive to God over others that we miss the point. We need to be passionate about addressing all sin in our lives, not just the big juicy ones. The elders and the priests require God's forgiveness just as much as this adulterous woman. A God-fearing Christian requires forgiveness just as much as the hardened criminal in prison. We need to get that right. That's a myth we need to bust. The third myth that we see busted in this passage is that God is just all about condemnation and judgment. That being a Christian is all about being told how awful you are. You know, this passage certainly doesn't present a God who is soft on sin. Jesus is full of grace and he certainly rescues this woman from a horrendous, embarrassing situation, but he also leaves no doubt that her life is sinful and that his will for her is to change. He doesn't support or encourage the life that she's leading. The last words from her, uh, last words to her, look, go and sin no more. He wants her to change her ways. The true beauty of this passage is we see that God is serious about sin, but he's even more serious about loving people. 
Tim Keller, the American pastor and preacher, puts it like this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It's undeniable that this woman is a sinner, caught red-handed with no defense, and yet Jesus, God himself in human form, despite his hatred and intolerance of sin, is minded to set her free and restore her. Just like this woman, if we were to stand before God, we would be standing in a state of guilt and shame with no leg to stand on. And yet the God of love, rather than condemning us, he loves us so much that he offers us a chance to be forgiven, to be washed clean, to be restored to relationship with him. It's so significant the way this story unfolds. This woman is presented to Jesus by a crowd of accusers, thirsty for blood. All of them want her punished and all of them want Jesus punished as well. But all of them have no right to criticise her because like her, they're sinners. And so Jesus clears the area until it's just one-on-one. It's just him and her left. She's just left with her and God, Jesus, God is Jesus God in human form. The God who must judge all mankind. The God who frankly is the only person whose opinion truly matters. I wonder if you know that this morning, that when it comes to your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, all the things you've done, you've said, you've thought, you know, everyone around you might have an opinion. You probably have an opinion on how you live your life. You might consider yourself to be a really good person. You might consider yourself to be a shameful failure. But the truth is, your opinion and the opinion of those around you doesn't really matter. It's what God thinks. It's what Jesus thinks. Jesus is the only one whose opinion truly matters about you. And Jesus says, I love you so much that I die for you. That's how highly I think of you. I know everything about you. I know that every hair on your head I know every thought in your mind. I know every word on your lips. I know your best qualities. I know your biggest failings. And I love you. And I died for you. And I want you to know me. And I want you to know me forever. Not just here on earth. This is just a taster. I want you to be with me for eternity in a new creation. So I died for you. For all the wrong things you've ever said, thought and done and will do. I've paid for them all. I took the punishment you deserved because I love you and I want to know you. That's the opinion that matters in our lives. That's what God would say to us. That's what Jesus would say to you this morning. No matter what you think, no matter what other people have told you, what they think of your life, it's Jesus' opinion that matters. He wants you to turn away from your life of sin and he wants you to find forgiveness and freedom in him. If you're a Christian or not, you need to hear this message, whether it's for the first time, or the 500th time. I know I need to hear it. I failed this week. I failed this morning. But for Jesus, but for Jesus, I am a no good lower down scumbag. I would stand before Jesus as guilty and ashamed as the woman in this story. And yet he would say the same to me as he said to her, where are they? Who's condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go on and sin no more. So they're the myths that are busted this morning. So what do we take from this? Well, I believe that what we want to see is, is true freedom through grace. We started off by likening this story to what happens to Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. The interesting thing in that story is what happens next. In freeing Jean Valjean, Bishop, the Bishop of Dina gives him a gift. He gives him these extra candlesticks and all that silver. And he urges him, he says, look, 
Go and use this. Now use these things to make a new life for yourself. Don't waste this opportunity that I'm giving you. It doesn't just show him mercy. He shows him grace. Mercy would have been to say, police, this guy deserves punishment. Please let him off. So just let him go back to his life of poverty. Let's just not give him the punishment he deserves. That's an act of kindness in itself. Not getting what he deserved for his actions. But grace goes further. Grace says, you know what? You get to go free, but you also get to keep the silver and have these candlesticks as well and go and build a new life for yourself. Get what you didn't deserve. It's a life-changing moment for Jean Valjean and he listens to the bishop's call not to waste that opportunity and he makes every attempt to throw off his old life and become a respectable, benevolent, kind member of society. And to a large extent, he actually succeeds. But the problem is at every turn, his old life is trying to call him back. There's a policeman called Javert who just follows him, who knows who Jean Valjean is underneath this new life he's built and tries to just constantly capture him and take him back to prison. At every turn, his old life is there knocking and saying, you're a prisoner, you're a criminal, you need to get back where you belong. And he never quite manages to throw it off. His guilt and shame are always knocking at the door. His new identity fails to mask the person that Javert knows Jean Valjean to be. But it's not like that with Jesus. That's where these two stories go their separate ways. Because with Jesus, the true freedom from the past, the shame and the guilt is possible. When he tells the woman to go away and sin no more, she truly can have a fresh start. Because all who believe in Jesus are given a new identity, a new life, a new start, a new hope. The life of sin and shame isn't just masked or disguised, it is dead and gone. A new person is born. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone in, is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. That's the gospel, guys. It's better than the story of Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. It's a new start. What is available to us as Christians is something brand new, a new life. The old identity gone, the new identity in Jesus is there. If you're a Christian this morning, I'd remind you of that this morning. Maybe you're troubled by a pattern of sin in your life that you're just finding it hard to shake. Maybe, maybe you're just feeling guilt and shame for something you've done wrong. I would say this morning, our God is not a God of guilt and shame. Our God is a, not a God of condemnation. He's a God who's given us a fresh start and a new hope and a clean slate again and again and again. If there's sin in your life that you need to deal with, deal with it, but go away and sin no more. Go away and step into the identity that you have got for yourself through Jesus. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to know, I see sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal it needs dealing with, but Jesus will deal with it for you. There is a, your sin is what blocks you from God. It's what stands in the way of a relationship between you and him. But Jesus has dealt with it. He paid the price for your sin at the cross. And there is a life of freedom, of grace, of guilt-free living available to you right here, right now. It's there for you. Go on your way and sin no more.